working through the series called Identity, Identity. And one of the powerful ways God changes us is he tells us who we are, and then when you think about who you are, it changes the way you live. So you don't just say to someone, I work on these six things. You say, no, no, this is who you are. And you're like, is that who I am? Can I live like that's who you are? Uh, this week I was driving to school with my kids and I look for little gaps where I teach them stuff about the faith. And I was taking my kids to primary school and I was saying, you know, you've got the church and then you've got the world. The church is in the world. Society. We're in Cape Town. Uh, thousands of people around us. What is the relationship of the church to the world? So I said to my kids, I said, there's four approaches. One approach is the bomb shelter approach. The church basically says the world is lost. It's under God's judgment. We're just going to hang out here underground and just wait for the bomb to go off and we're going to survive. Okay? I said, that's not a cool one. Hey? Uh, the other approach is the church is a mirror. You hold up, you basically say, there's the culture, we're in the culture, we're so tied with the culture that actually we've got all the same values of the culture, everything the, the culture's into, we're into. Well, now you've lost your distinctness. I said, that's not the right one either. I said, the other approach is the parasite. The church is a parasite. Parasite benefits from its host, but gives nothing back. It's possible to be a church in the city of Cape Town, and we're going to enjoy all the cool things about Cape Town, all the best parts of our culture, but make no concerted effort to give anything back to the city and back to the culture. I said, that one's not right either. So I said, the fourth one is the one Jesus says. Jesus says the church is salt and light. I said, you think about salt. Salt is different from the food, which is why it adds flavor, but it can't stay in the salt shaker. It needs to actually get into the food. And I said, so you need contact and you need contrast. Contrast. In other words, we creatively participate in the city of Cape Town. We're, not, we're in Cape Town, but we're not of Cape Town. We're for Cape Town, and we're different from Cape Town. And I tried to explain this to my kids. I was very chuffed with myself. And then my eight-year-old twin said, Dad, too much salt will kill someone. <laughs> I was like, Dad. <laughs> And then he, he was obviously just throwing in all these expressions he's learning, and he says, and besides, too many cooks spoil the broth, Dad. <laughs> End of lesson. <laughs> okay, so we're speaking about identity in Christ, and uh, I just wanted for the front part of my message to say something about baptism. So on the 22nd of October, we can't use this venue, but we've got a better idea. Breakfast and baptisms on the beach. Camp Sway Beach on the left-hand side of the beach. Uh, this side of the beach, the one that looks up at Lion's Head there. Uh, we're going to get together at 9.30. If you forget and you arrive here on the day, someone will deflect you and say, go to the beach. <laughs> so that's the 22nd of October. And we are going to be baptizing people. Some people have already said they want to be baptized. But for the front part of my message, can I just quickly tell you what baptism is about? Why get baptized? Reason number one, because Jesus did. Luke chapter 3, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, okay? Jesus didn't need to get baptized, but he was setting an example for his followers. Second reason to get baptized is because Jesus said so. He said to his disciples, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the third reason to get baptized is because all the first believers did. Acts chapter 2 3,000 people come to faith. It says, all those who believed the message were baptized. Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches about the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And it says, and all those who believed were baptized. So there's some good reasons to get baptized. The word baptize 
comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dunk, to immerse, to put in. So that's why in Signal we don't sprinkle, we go under the water. We go under the water. And um, what is baptism? Well, it's five things. It's a wedding ring. This isn't a verse in the Bible, but... You know, if Julie and I just made a vow to each other, now we've got this unseen bond with each other. But of course, on our wedding day, we put on a wedding ring as an external sign to say to the whole world that there's this invisible bond between me and Julie. Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you're united to Christ, you have got an invisible bond to him. But God wants you to go public with it. Put on the wedding ring of baptism. Baptism depicts to the world, I belong to Jesus. Secondly, baptism is a bath of cleansing. In Acts chapter 22, the apostle Paul, uh, when he gets baptized, the guy who's baptizing him says, what are you waiting for? Get baptized, washing away your sins. Now, of course, that campsite water is not going to wash away your sins. Jesus washes away your sins. But the water powerfully depicts what Jesus has done. And um, so that's another reason to get baptized. What else is baptism? Baptism is a burial and a resurrection, a burial and a resurrection. Listen to Colossians chapter two, and I take it from the message paraphrase. It's baptism is, sorry, if it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. You speak to a church of people who had been baptized. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. So the water, the reason you go under the water, it's a picture of your burial. <laughs> and of course, Jesus was died and buried, so you're identifying with Jesus. And then as you come out of the water, you're alive. You've been made alive in Christ. And of course, um, you, 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 know, you died, you're coming up someone new. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then one last thing baptism is, is that baptism is an invitation to God to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the spirit. We're going to read shortly about how Jesus went under the water, came up out of the water, and then the spirit of God was poured upon him. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, there's a 120 people that get filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody's watching this, going, What's going on? This community of people have come alive to God. And you can tell they come alive because they're praising and they're worshiping and they, something is happening to these people. If you're new to church, I'm sure you looked around. You want to know what was happening to these people this morning? Spirit of God's being poured out. Same thing happened at Pentecost. Well, anyway, they preached the gospel. By the end of the day, 3,000 people say we're in. And then uh, Peter says to them, he says, be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And uh, we pray when you be baptized, you come out the water, we want to pray for you. We want to pray that God's Spirit comes upon you. Many people get filled with the Spirit before they're baptized, um, but there is this principle that actually baptism paves the way for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came out of the water and he was praying and then the heavens opened. So as you come out the water, we're going to get some people around you. We're going to pray for you. We pray for God's while the water's dripping off you. We pray for the Spirit of God to be poured out upon you. Who can baptize you? Well, um, 
Jen could baptize you. Uh, we can get some, one of our leaders to baptize you. But what I recommend is that if, who's the person, who's the believer in God who's impacted you the most? Ask them to baptize you. So that's, that's a possibility. So 22nd of October, we're going to be baptizing people. Hey, preteens, you guys are free to go out with Jody. Thanks for staying in. I just wanted you guys to hear this part of the message. So, carrying on with the theme of identity in Christ. I've got two points to make. We're going through Ephesians chapter 1. We're going through it very slowly. We're giving ourselves to the end of the year. And as you read it, you hit these phrases. You're like, we've got to spend a Sunday on that phrase. So let's read the opening verses we're struggling to get past. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Did you see I put in bold, I mean in, uh, in capitals, two phrases, his pleasure and in the one he loves. And I want to give this message to those two points. So I've got two points. If you are in Christ, by the way, if you're not yet in Christ, you're invited. You're invited to trust in Jesus. You don't have, don't go to bed tonight before putting your, your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So you're invited. But once you're in Christ, you can say, you can look in the mirror and you can say, I am beloved. I'm going to explain that word. And then the second thing you can say, you look in the mirror, you say, I am in the beloved. I am beloved and I am in the beloved. Okay, what does beloved mean? I've got a dictionary definition. A strong sense of love and affection often used to describe someone who is dearly liked. You could say, I am liked and I am in the beloved. So let's focus firstly on this idea that I am beloved. I am dearly liked. Now, um, I I'm always amazed on a Sunday when prophetic words line up with, my me- with the message that's being brought and there was no correspondence beforehand. So guess what my verse is for this point? Janeth shared it. She got up here and, and read it. And I've got it in a different translation. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. This is the dancing Jesus part. See, here's my message. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. See, when many of us hear that God loves us, we assume that he loves us in spite of who we are. I mean, his love is unconditional, right? So he puts up with us, we think. But actually, when we are God's child, he loves us because of who we are, because of the fact that he made us and he has a special place in his heart for us. And that's hinted at in Ephesians 1, where we said, in love he adopted us in accordance with his pleasure. God is not stoic, he's not detached, his heart is not made of stone, it's an open wound of love, and he is finding so much pleasure in having us as his adopted children. 
It's not only showing grace in the undeserving that brings him pleasure, he takes pleasure in his children themselves. So this is one of the ideas that we find in the Bible, that God who is big enough and mathematical enough to make a universe is also deeply personal and he finds such delight in his people. I'll give you some verses from the Old Testament. God delights in the welfare of his servants, Psalm 35. He rejoices in doing us good, Jeremiah 32. He says to Israel, you will be called, my delight is in her, Isaiah 62. Or Psalm 149, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. That's a God who has, who has the ability to enjoy each of us. And for a New Testament example, we, we, we hear the Father's words spoken over Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The Father delighted in his son, not because Jesus had done a ton of ministry. He hadn't done any ministry at the age of 30. And not because he needed mercy, because he didn't. He was the only sinless person who ever lived. And yet the Father delights in him. The Father's saying, I love your uniqueness. I love who you are to me. I love being with you. So I don't know if you can take these words into your deepest soul, but I pray and hope that that you can. God likes you. He really likes you. So I know what you're thinking. Uh, What about those parts of my life that are sinful? The bad stuff in my life. Well, of course he doesn't like those parts. Your Immoral moments, your unbelief, your self-centeredness, of course, those displease him. The Bible says as much. But even when he, the Bible word, chastises us, deals with us for our compromise or our callousness, he delights in who he made us to be. Listen to this. The Lord corrects him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. There's a father who is able to delight in who we really are, even while he corrects the things about our lives that are, that are sinful, that shouldn't be there. And I think that's what makes him a perfect father. Human parents switch from delight to complete annoyance and inability to actually enjoy any good part of our child when one part of us enrages us. When God looked over his unfallen creation and his image-bearing creatures in Genesis 1, he said, it is very good. He loved it all, especially his children. We're so used to speaking about God loving us despite who we are that we forget that there's another kind of love that God has for us. It's the joy a maker finds in their creation. It's the thrill a parent finds in their offspring. Ask a parent if they delight in their kids, their little quirks. They're your unique personality. All good parents do. (laughs) Do you believe that God, the best parent of all, has less delight in us than that? Last night I went to my children's school play. Two of them were in the school play. One of my children was a lead actor. Amazing talent of singing and acting. And and then behind him is his sister, who's one of the chew-up girls, dancing the whole time. And... uh, and so he's got a very individual role. She just loves being part of the, the gang and getting it just right, you know. I asked her, did you make any mistakes? She says, not that she's aware of. I mean, she, she's in it for the... And I was just thinking how different those two kids are. And then as the 
theater ends, and I'm like, wow, I've got two children that are built for the stage. I swing my head, and I look at one of my children who is absolutely the furthest thing from a person who would enjoy being on the stage. I'm like, how did two parents bring such diversity to the world? Each of our children is different, and I, in my best moments as a parent, delight in what makes you different. Jesus' love for his chosen ones was not only the sacrificial sort. I mean, if he only loved because he was supposed to, he would not be brokenhearted at their death. And yet Jesus wept at his friend Lazarus's funeral. If Jesus only loved his friends because he was supposed to, he wouldn't let them rest their heads on his chest at a dinner time. Yet God's heart surges with tenderness toward us today. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he experienced Jesus' feelings for them rising up in his heart. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Read once again, Zephaniah 3 verse 17, about the God who delights over us in song. We can almost imagine the Father in heaven setting his eyes upon one of his children on the earth. And now the angels who are around him begin to whisper to each other. There he goes again with the singing. (laughs) But realize it's you that his heart is fixed on, and it's your name in his song. So that's my first point. And I don't know if you can receive it, but I hope you can. You're not just loved, you're liked by your Father in heaven. He delights in you. Uh, That's pretty cool, eh? A lot of people I know say that they feel like they, that that God is constantly annoyed by them. (laughs) You just can't get this idea that that your Father enjoys you. You you, you pray apologetically, sorry, if I can just have a few more minutes of your time. (laughs) Father that enjoys you. Guy and I were actually talking the other day about um, what, there's some research done, what makes a person likable? Why, do you, why, do pe- why are there some people that everybody seems to like? So they've done the research. Guess what the number one fact is? That person likes other people. Oh no, I'm just not a people's person. I don't like people. Strangely, those people are not that liked by other people. The person who comes into the room and says, I just like everybody in this room. They seem to be the most likable people. Our Heavenly Father likes you. You get the feeling Jesus lived in this world as someone just giving everybody a chance in the room. The fact that Pharisees, who had some heavy things to say about, still wanted to hang out with him. He liked people. He liked people. So I am beloved. Secondly, I am in the beloved. I am in the beloved. So Ephesians 1 verse 6 goes on to speak about how um, I am loved in the one he loves. The translation is, it says, we've been freely, this amazing love has been freely given us in the one he loves. What's that about? Some translations literally have it, this grace has been freely given us in the beloved. To put it another way, I am loved in the one He loves. I'm loved in the beloved. So listen to this, listen to this passage where Jesus describes how he is loved by the Father, what it means that he is the one the Father loves. John 17, um, 
Jesus is busy praying in front of his disciples. It's the night before he's crucified. And, um, and they're listening in on his prayers. And he's praying. He says, may my disciples be in us, Father, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You loved me before the creation of the world. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So let's just ponder quickly that Jesus is the Father's beloved. I mean, in his prayer, Jesus is, is one with the Father who glorifies him. What does it mean that, that the Father glorifies him? Well, it means that the Father enjoys him. The Father lifts him up. The Father loves Jesus most emphatically. He has poured out love on his Son since eternity past. Jesus uses the words, before the creation of the world. And then there's two incidences in Jesus' ministry, one at the beginning and one near the end, where we catch a snapshot of the affection the Father has for the Son. Uh, the first one is at his baptism, in which uh, he's in a river and a voice comes from heaven, and the Father says, you are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Then years later, Jesus took three of his closest friends up onto a mountain, and it says that a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we know this, the Father adores the Son, always has, always will. This love is so powerful and overflowing that it is the reason, it's the ground for the existence of the universe. Before the universe was created, 13.8 billion years ago, scientists are getting their dating right. Before that moment, you got the Father and the Son through the bond of the Spirit, in, locked into such dynamic love and affection, they create the universe in love. Just such super abundant life and love. Now, you might need to be sitting down, and I can see that you are. You might need to put your safety belts on for what, what I'm about to say, because you said both in John 17 prayer, and you said in Ephesians 1, if you are in Christ, then your father cherishes you to the same degree that he cherishes his son. And listen to Jesus' words. You have loved them even as you have loved me. All of the father's affection for his son is poured out upon us. So let me take the words of a biblical scholar called Peter O'Brien. He says it a bit more theologically. He says, the one whom God loves refers to Jesus' status as God's son and indicates that our own sonship or daughtership is due to being found in him. The bounty which he lavishes on us consists in our being caught up into the love between the father and the son. Stupendously. The words spoken over Jesus in a river and in a mountain are declared over you this is my daughter, this is my son, whom I love, in whom is all my delight. And since the father has loved the son since eternity past, he's well capable of loving us into eternity future. And what did we do to deserve this amazing love? 
Well, Ephesians 1 verse 6 says, He has freely given us this grace, this adoption. Nothing! You did nothing to attract his love. So Jesus comes out the water. Father speaks those words. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. What happens straight afterwards? Well, we're told that straight afterwards, the Spirit of God has come upon him like a dove, sends him out into the wilderness where there is a time of testing. And along comes um, the devil himself. And what are the words of the devil to Jesus? If you are the Son of God. Can anyone relate to that? Sit in a sermon, you get told that you're loved, that you're a child of God, that you're a saint, that you're chosen. God's got a plan and a destiny for your life. And by Sunday afternoon, 4.30, thoughts are coming to you, you're having experiences, and it feels like such a distant memory, it can't be true. Because look what the devil does. He chops out all of the adjectives. He should have said, if you are the loved, delighted in Son of God, chop out the adjectives. If you are the Son of God, question mark. And then suggest that Jesus maybe try proves his identity. And Jesus withstands the temptation for you cannot prove your identity. You can only live it out. One fascinating way of reading the fall of the human race in Genesis 3, when the devil comes and tempts Adam and Eve, is he basically puts a question mark on whether they are loved by, the, by God. Whether he, the Father is maybe holding out on them. Maybe actually they should sit on the throne of their own lives. And amazingly, Genesis 3, it's like this amnesia comes over the human race. They forget who they are. And then the story of redemption is the story of rediscovering who you are in God. Have you seen the movie The Blood Diamond? It depicts the world of uh, conflict diamonds during Sierra Leone's 1999 civil war. And at the end of it, in the middle of this corpse-filled battlefield, you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, he is acting as Danny Archer, and he is assisting Solomon Vandy, or who's acted as, who's, I mean, the actor Jimon Honsu, and they're digging at this alleged site looking for this buried diamond. But now this movie's got this interesting subplot. What's happening is that Solomon Vandy has been searching for his boy, Deer, who uh, many years ago was kidnapped brutalized and forced to be a child soldier in this conflict zone. And of course, to this point, he hasn't found his son dear. But while the two men are digging for a diamond, a boy with a gun comes upon them. Deer is holding a gun. The trained killer child has forgotten his own dad and he's about to kill the two lead actors in the movie. What's Solomon gonna do? He's gonna try to snatch the gun out of his son's hand. No, he speaks words. He says, you, oh dear Vandy, of the proud Mende tribe, you are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire with your sister and the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. 
and love prevails over the amnesia in dear. He has forgotten who he is and how he is loved, but now he remembers and he crumples into his father's arms and drops the gun. That's the story of the gospel. And that is the story of redemption. And that's right at the heart of what it means to be in Christ. Can I ask you to stand up? Olivia, you are loved and you are liked. <laughs> Jen, I need your help. Not with Olivia, with ending the meeting. We've still got 10 minutes together. We try to get done by 11. We seldom manage to put the lid back on at 11. Still lots of stuff happening. If we can have the band on the stage. Hmm. In some ways, this message is a commentary on what was happening before the message, hey? <laughs> it's like, it was, it was describing what was happening. But of course, God wants to do some more. God wants to do some more. And, and you're welcome to come to the front. You're also welcome to stay where you are and let the affection of the Father get poured out upon your life.